When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Christo, and welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 177. It's treason, then. Often when talking about the English Civil War, historians frame it as starting in August of 1642. But much of the conflict began well before that. The Bishops' War that we mentioned in the last episode in Scotland, along with rebellions in Ireland, had destabilized the regime enough that there was a need to call out the military. This need meant that there was also a need to call the Parliament. So the war probably set off much earlier than expected or acknowledged than the break with Parliament. However, it is the break that gets all the press because that is when general war truly began. If we look at it in a modern context, the war between Ukraine and Russia began more realistically in 2014 with the invasion of Crimea, but for most Westerners, the definition of the invasion and the way that we look at when it actually started was when the Russians invaded the whole of the country on February 24th, 2022, something that is at variance with what a lot of Ukrainians would say. Thus, sort of the same argument can be made here. While the direct conflict between the parliament and the government began in the summer of 1642, one could argue that the war itself started much earlier than that, in part because one of the sides that was in the war had already been fighting the king, and that was the Scottish. In the summer of 1642, a rebellion had begun in Ireland, which also set this whole process going. The civil strife was a result of years of prejudice and likely English high-handedness, which created circumstances that left many in the economic poverty and indebted to various masters and lords. The Irish had attacked English settlers, setting off chaos in panic in England, in part because of the explanations coming out of Ireland was that hundreds of thousands had been injured or killed, which of course was completely false. The number was closer to four to 5,000, which is a very high level of variance. Uh, as well, both Catholics and Protestants in Ireland carried out tit-for-tat murders, plundering, and rustling of various livestock the chaos, while never as high as reported in England, as we said, by the government in Ireland, was enough to force Charles into action. Of course, during Charles's reign, Ireland had been a constant level of concern, much as Scotland had been. The problems had been continual, and in both cases, it was religious-driven as well as culturally driven. And it's something that I think people somewhat lose track of, is how much... 
the disputes in Ireland were driving so much of the politics of the day in England. And of course, what was also reflecting on and driving some of the mentality in Wales was some of the gentry who had seen the Thirty Years' War, which had been raging in Europe at this time, and kind of the effect of that on the public and on, I mean, let's be honest, more importantly to the gentry, other gentry. So the reflection that this kind of religious turmoil could create huge problems at all sides in England and in Wales reflected badly on the other two countries in the opinion of them, and thus stability demanded that the English intercede. As this insurrection immediately elevated into a political crisis in England, Charles and the Parliament, as we previously discussed, argued over which of them should be in control of the army and who should be responsible for funding it so that they could put down these Irish insurgents or rebels, depending on which tactic you want to use. Charles wanted full control, and the Parliament, which had already been upset over the way the king had manipulated power and had tried to ignore them as much as possible, were not willing to sort of bend on that opinion. Instead of working together, Charles raised an army on his own in Nottingham in 1642. This went against the way things were done, in quotes, and thus parliamentarians became incensed by his own actions, looking at it as not necessarily aimed at Ireland, but aimed at them. The Welsh, loyal at this initial stage to the king, began to raise troops on his behalf, some out of loyalty, some out of greed, others because they wanted to protect the old order that they had benefited from so strongly. James Howell, expressed something that many in Wales at the time might have agreed with. In quotes, Innovations are dangerous consequences in all things, especially in a settled and well-tempered state, for they might shake the whole frame of government and introduce a change, and changes in government are commonly fatal, for seldom comes a better. End quote. Something that you can understand in the context of all the wars that had surrounded them. History had taught them that a shaky government during the War of the Roses developed into constant flux and constant problems, bringing constant change in various governments as various leaders either died in battle or died of various causes, thus creating more instability and many in the Welsh gentry who had benefited from the system that the Tudors had brought were not in any shape or form wanting radical change. So defending their monarch would feel like a no-brainer to most of these people. Case in point, the Herberts and the Devereaux saw it as a chance to carry out their family blood feuds into an actual war, both seeing an opportunity to seize each other's land, something that would flow into a lot of the mentality on both sides at times. Very similar, really, to what happened in the War of the Roses, where nobles saw the advantage of joining one side or the other, not because they necessarily agreed with that particular side, but rather because they felt that A, they were the winning side, and B, they would financially gain from it, which certainly was the case for a few of them, but not all of them. And the problem is when you're on the winning side in one minute and then the losing side two minutes down the road, 
that isn't always ideal either. And there will be a lot of this in this war, much like there was in the War of the Roses, because so much changed over the few years of the war and in the aftermath that came from it. Some in Wales blamed the war on the parliamentarians and felt that they were being forced to fight for the king because of the exposure to death and destruction that would come because of the war. Likely, they felt that the king would win the war quickly if they joined him, which, to be fair to them, might have happened in 1642 had he taken London as planned rather than getting stopped abruptly and being unable to proceed any further than Banbury. Prominent Welsh gentlemen, such as Sir Nicholas Kemi, for example, were active in raising troops for the army and fought for the king at the Battle of Edge Hill in October of 1642. By the end of the year, 10,000 troops, perhaps 5% of the male population in Wales, had joined the king's forces. This is not insignificant, needless to say. The initial stages of the war was considered a bit of a phony war because other than the battle at Edge Hill, there was no battles. There was very little conflict because there simply wasn't enough troops on either side to carry out some sort of major warfare. And even as they did gather troops, a lot of the fighting became much more about sieges and skirmishes rather than pitch battles. They dominated the military landscape in England during the First Civil War as local garrisons determined to destroy the economic basis of their opponents while preserving their own resources, scrambled and fought for territory. In other words, exchanging castles, exchanging manor houses, seizing farmland, stealing crops and livestock were more typical of these battles rather than out-and-out fights in the way we would see them in previous wars in Britain at the time and before that. The Parliament controlled London and the south of England, which was very much the economic powerhouse of the country, while Charles controlled the Midlands, the Northwest, and Wales, which meant he needed to capture London if he was to retain his power. There will be and are a few podcasts that will certainly give you a blow-for-blow account of the war, of the various parties that led various battles, had influence on the various decision-making, and probably give you a much better accounting of the strategies and tactics of both sides. It's just something I'm not going to do because this isn't important to the overall discussion of Wales, but it's certainly interesting and would take up probably the next 10 to 15 episodes. So rather than do that, we're going to compress it into a two-episode arc, effectively. In the first instance, we're going to talk today more about the war from 1642 to about 1644-45 in there, talk about some of the aftermath for Wales. But we will focus in on the final two years, the actual years when the parliamentarians were actually winning in the next episode to kind of bring to a close that side of the discussion and kind of focus more on the consequences of what happened rather than on the actual battles. Uh, Like I said, in the early stages, the Royalists had been winning. They were able to deal with the parliamentarians, some important losses, but 
major battles were hard to come by. The first major battle, as I said, was Edge Hill in the north of London, where the king won the first battle through his ability to muster a slightly bigger army, but only achieved small success because the only thing he was really able to hold was Banbury. He, in the end, was unable to break through to London because the parliamentary forces were able to regroup and reorder a defensive line that happened to protect London from the onslaught from the north, something that would be very familiar when we, again, if you talk about the War of the Roses, the fight for London was always sort of seen as the key point. If you controlled London, you controlled the capital, which even back then was a significant city in Britain and had significance to both sides. So even just controlling the city would be seen as monumental, even if it wasn't necessarily on the overall aspect of the war, it could create morale issues, which might drive enough people out of the war that one side or the other could finally win. Of course, for the Royalists, that was their main goal. As far as the parliamentarians went, holding that was absolutely critical, and they continued to do so through most of the war. In 1644, so we're going to skip ahead a little bit, the Covenanters in Scotland, those that we mentioned last episode who were Presbyterians and had held a particular religious belief and ideal, which went against what Charles was pushing, and who were at war with the English long before, had signed a treaty with the parliamentarians to come to their aid. They brought to the table 20,000 well-trained and experienced troops, which would become a significant grouping in changing the fortunes of the war in the favor of parliamentarians. Those who sided with the parliament from Wales did so in increasing number over the war. This came about either because they saw the political advantages, obviously as the king started to lose, some would start to see this as a good time to flip sides. In some cases, younger members of the nobility saw what the king's strategy was as flawed, saw a lot of the tactics and ability on the other side, and particularly the changes to the way armies worked and were created by the English parliamentarians as being important, and thus would switch sides for that reason, along with, of course, the financial rewards that would go with being on the winning side. So in the spring of 1644, the Royalist forces based in York were under siege by a much larger parliamentary force. On July 2nd, 1644, Charles had sent a Royalist release force to break the siege, and this led to a battle called the Marston Moor. Both sides had about 7,000 cavalry, but about 11,000 royalist infantry were easily outnumbered by the combined 20,000 parliamentary and Scottish infantry. The defeat was the first major loss for the royalists in the war. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfasts, 
on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. For the early portion of the war, Wales had avoided the worst of the fighting, as battles were generally focused initially around English areas that were the keys to the success for the royalists. In other words, Wales being a, in quotes, backwater country wasn't seen as important enough to take and hold, at least for either side, because other than men and agricultural material, there wasn't a whole lot that you could get from Wales that would be to your advantage, unlike controlling the south of England or controlling York and the north. All of those things would definitely contribute to a possible victory, but controlling Wales, which even at the best of times would be described as out of the way, uh, would have less symbolic value. However, it didn't mean it didn't become important and didn't become a key place for the war. And we will talk in depth about this in the next episode, specifically about how the Royalists had used various castles in certain ways and how that led to some of the demises of some of those castles. The, For example, Raglan was home of the powerful Royalist supporter Henry V, Earl of Worcester, and it was garrisoned early for the king, and parliamentary propaganda claimed that columns of Roman Catholic soldiers were hiding in vaults underneath it. Of course, that was absolutely ridiculous, but nonetheless, there was a lot of this that went on. The parliamentarians used their ability to print stuff in London specifically to try and set all sorts of very insane levels of fake news out there about the association between the Catholics and the king and as well specifically to try and put links between the Welsh lack of understanding of Puritanism to their loyalty to the king and thus they needed to be fixed from this ignorance as they would see it. 
Charles I stayed in the castle for several weeks in 1645, and it was in a symbolic gesture of revenge that parliamentarians demolished part of the castle when it capitulated in 1646. The damage that they did is actually still visible today. You can actually still see it if you go to the castle. That will not be the last castle that will pay the price for being associated with the king. Slowly but surely, as the war went on, it was obvious that the parliamentarians had gained the upper hand, as I mentioned. The war increasingly moved from England into royalist Wales, often in the form of sieges, and many castles jotting the landscape faced this warfare. Welsh Parliamentary General Sir Thomas Middleton established a parliamentary success and a beachhead with the invasion of mid-Wales between 1644 and 45. The royalist cause collapsed in England and Wales between 1645 and 46, and it was then that in Wales the final redoubt of royalism was to be found. There was a garrison at Harlech in probably the least plausible spot for any sort of comeback, but yet the one spot that seemingly always seems to survive the longest for the side that's losing. Think of Owen Glyndwr of the group that was fighting for Henry VI in the War of the Roses. All of these people seem to end up at this castle fighting, or at least the Welsh portion of the supporters ended up this castle fighting for and in behalf of these various forces and almost always came to a rather abrupt end. And this garrison would be the last of Charles's Southern kingdom to surrender on the 16th of March, 1647. Once again, Harlot castle held out once again, as we discussed many episodes ago, this is part of the reason why there's confusion about the great anthem Men of Harlech, because different historians and, and people who've studied it question whether or not the particular song comes from the Owen Glyndor period, the War of the Roses period, or from this period, because in each case they were the final bastion against the invading English force. So nobody knows for sure. Most people lean towards the War of the Roses as being the most accurate. But again, there is arguments for all three, and I'm not here to decide for everybody else. Given the commitment that the Welsh showed to their king in the conflict, it is perhaps unsurprising that Wales was one of the key flashpoints of the so-called Second Civil War of 1648, pro-royalist uprisings occurred in both North and South Wales, and Kemi's death was part of the last throw of the royalist dice in Wales. As mentioned earlier, Kemi was a key man in gaining men and material for the king, and thus his position against the government or the parliamentarians was pretty secure because of his loyalty. Contemporaries recognized Wales's allegiance to the king, and as one royalist newspaper at the time observed, in quotes, loyalty runs so in the blood amongst the Welsh that it would be vain for Parliament to attempt the last refuge of monarchy, which Providence seems to have given in earnest for the restitution of the whole. 
end quote. The former parliamentarian, Roland Laharain, boy, I probably massacred that name, uh, led around 8,000 royalist rebels, the parliament's much smaller but better trained force of around 3,000 men, which was arrayed around T Colonel Thomas Horton. The outcome was a crushing defeat from the royalists and the effective collapse of their cause in South Wales. On May 25, 1648, Sir Nicholas Kemmy's commander of the Royalist forces at Chepstow and a gentleman who had raised Welsh troops for the king in the first major battle of the Civil War six years earlier. He had led the last gasp of the Royalists to hold out against the new model army, the successor to the Parliamentarian army, one that was more professional and much more like what we would think of as a modern army. Behind the beleaguered defenses of the Chepstow Castle in southeast Wales, they continued to hold out the Royalists did in vain. The castle walls were eventually breached and a ferocious assault descended on its garrison. The rebellious Welsh forces' defeat in the southeast ended the Second Civil War miserably. Cromwell, who had helped suppress the last of the remnants of this resistance at the Pembroke Castle, had his mind turned towards the Welsh at this point and referred to them in quotes, a seduced and ignorant people, end quote. Cromwell viewed the Welsh as a population that were ignorant, and this ignorance was a lack of understanding of the Puritan faith, as I mentioned this topic earlier. So to Cromwell, the way to resolve this was to create a religious re-education camps to train the Welsh to follow his faith, to understand the Puritan doctrine, as it were. Cromwell supported a state-sponsored initiative to bring this about, the Commission for the Propagation of the Gospel in Wales, which was established in February 1650. Although it survived only to 1653, the commissioner was empowered to create enclaves of Puritanism in Wales and help to establish these communities of religious nonconformity and political radicalism throughout the country. These survived beyond the restoration of Charles II and would come to be seen as the foundation of a dissenting tradition that is so important to the history of modern Wales and arguably went wildly opposite of what Cromwell and his cronies probably had hoped would happen. But such dissent remains an exception rather than the rule, and the restoration of Charles II in 1660 was considered a time where Wales was found to be happy and rejoicing rather than downtrodden and defeated. This was in part because they believed he would then restore their ancient British church to her primitive splendor, but also because he acknowledged as having descended from King Cadwallar, the last king of the ancient Britons. As we've mentioned before, this is one of the effects of Geoffrey Monmouth, is that everybody wanted to be descended from the big guy, which was Cadwallar, instead of his father, who was the more successful of the two. This sense of legitimacy deriving from British blood was important in motivating the Welsh to support the Tudors and the Stuart regimes. It was also seen as a triumphant return 
of this man who brought home the ancient Welsh kings to the throne, something that, again, was incredibly important to Wales and to the Welsh population, at least amongst the gentry and those who understood it, and possibly amongst the general public, because certainly you would expect that they would be informed of this ideal and this idea of the Stuarts who were descendants of Tudors, or at least partially of Tudors, being linked into all those Welsh kings and to the old Scottish kings, who, of course, were seen as the old Britons, the old Picts, the old Scotti, who were, while they were Irish, were still, you know, a part of the British Isles. And, of course, all of that linked together with the Old North that was linked heavily to Wales at one time during the invasion of the Saxons. So all of these things created linkages amongst all of these so-called Celtic nations and thus allowed them to continue to link together, even at a time when really there wasn't a lot holding them together. The, a lot of what we think of as being the, the, the uni, unity of Celtic Britain didn't really exist at this time. Most Welsh people didn't look at the Irish and see a common ancestry. They looked at the Irish and saw a rebellious people that needs to be put down. They leaned into what a lot of the English thought was. We will see as the empire grows, they will be behind a lot of it. Slavery, there will be a lot of Welsh people involved in it. So all of these things don't show some sense of camaraderie amongst the various groups. That comes about actually later in about 100 to 150 years when the various sides do start to recognize each other as being from the same cloth or the same cultural foundation as antiquity and the concerns about archaeology in its primitive state began to become important and the study of ancestry and something other than like relying on Jeffrey Monmouth and his writings or some other popular wag who kind of faked a lineage all of these things now were suddenly becoming more important as we turn away from religion being the main reason why people started to fight each other and argue as we are going to get there in the next hundred years and it's going to become a much different place. But for the moment, there's still a level of separation even amongst them at this time. So the idea that the Welsh are striving towards this ancient king. It's not an ancient king of Scotland. It's not an ancient king of Ireland. It's not even an ancient king of Saxon England. It's an ancient king of Wales. And that's what mattered. The ancient British, because believe it or not, I've said it before, I'll say it again. The Welsh thought of themselves as the ancient inheritors of Britain, be it the Roman British or the British that were there before the Romans came. They saw themselves as those inheritors, and thus it was important to them to have their king on the throne. And so at times when that king basically betrayed them or treated them poorly, they still held that loyalty because he was their guy. And so it became very difficult for them to separate those two things. So the Tudors received an amazing amount of safety because of this. And on reflection, so did the Stuarts. Had the Stuarts not had the support of the Welsh, 
especially in Charles's beginning stages of the Civil War, one could argue that the Civil War would have turned even quicker. So it's fascinating to see these two sides of a different coin and two ways of looking at things when realistically, I can honestly say that other than using it for propaganda purposes, I've not seen any evidence that the Tudors or the Stuarts really cared for the Welsh, really held them up as being examples to anyone. Even Henry VII, who was probably the closest, I, I don't see that linkage being very strong. So, I mean, Henry grew up in France. He may or may not have known Welsh. And like I said, he would have been the closest to that. Maybe Arthur, his oldest son, might have had it as well. But the truth of the matter is, is that I don't think the linkages were very strong. And so they used that link as a tool and it worked very well. So with that all said and done, we're going to go get into specifics about some of what happened to some of the castles in some of the battles in this war. And we'll brush through those fairly quickly and then we'll move on in the coming episodes to the end of the Stuart reign and the beginning of a new era in both our podcast and in the history of Wales as we move off into the 1700s and into the Enlightenment period, which changes an incredible amount of opinions and creates entirely new governments in various places of the world. And the first true rebellion against colonialism comes from these areas, which I think are fascinating to see and, and definitely have bearing on what happens in Wales and elsewhere. So until then, everybody, thank you for listening. I hope you have a great day. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh history podcast at gmail.com. You can always reach out to me on Twitter at Welsh history pod and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. Thank you, everybody, once again for listening. I hope you all have a great day. Take care. We'll see you later. Bye-bye. Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.